0: Some sugar in my coffee Come on, come on, it on Very smooth segue there, Richard Richard No, thank you, Richard This is hell Live from the United States Where the law is far too often the crime This is hell Under capitalism, lives are made disposable The inequality baked into the system Makes it so capitalism depends upon That injustice of inequality to continue Which means capital views many of us As having surplus lives That are surplus Superfluous and, frankly, unnecessary. But what to do with those non-conformers who can't seem to assimilate to a life under capital? What about, say, the disabled who cannot physically or mentally contribute to capitalism? Well, first, it's important to know that capitalism created the concept of being disabled, and if making you, and it making you, you know, unable to contribute to society. Before capitalism, people like me. Had a much better time of it And were seen as contributors to society But after capitalism emerged Something needed to be done about the disabled So their lives Now deemed to have little value in the market Were taken from them As they were locked away into institutions That very much had the appearance of prison Eventually the disabled Who proved they are Actually very able Rose up and through their activism The disabled achieved deinstitutionalization. The problem was that what that meant was the federal government would be shirking their responsibility of caring for the disabled and were simply taking them from their miserable institutions and dumping the disabled on the streets of big cities across the United States. The broken social welfare safety net provided the disabled with only poverty earnings. And it wasn't like institutionalization had actually ended. Instead, the government program was replaced by privately run care often in the very same facilities that had housed the disabled in the past. What it all means is that, like the racialized policing faced by African Americans, the disabled have also been targeted by mass incarceration. In a few minutes, we'll talk with Keith Rosenthal, author of the Spectre Journal article, Carceral Histories of Disability and Abolitionist Analysis, which you can find at spectrejournal.com dot com that's Spectre S P E C T R E Journal dot com. Keith is the editor of Capitalism and Disability Selected Writings by Marta Russell. Keith is currently a graduate student in the Disability Studies program at the City University of New York. And you can follow Keith on Twitter at KeithMNR81. Keith M N R eighty one. Keith M is in Mary N as in Nancy R eighty one. Find more of Keith's writing at his blog, JoanOfMark.blogspot.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. It's Wednesday, which means producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Richard, anything new by you? Good morning, sir. Good morning.
1: Uh, I think I'm finally getting my my crappy old front door awning replaced. <laughs> That's
0: pretty exciting.
1: <laughs> I have like one of those. Kind of traditional Chicago aluminum awnings that's been on my front door for like, or above my front door for like fifty or sixty years. And, I it, guess. and they're
0: not supposed to even last them for <laughs> ten years. They're really <laughs> crappy. I know what you're talking about. Yeah,
1: I, I, my neighbor is like a con- uh, construction guy, and he, he uh, we we talked about something like way back in June, and finally, it's oh, I think I think later this week it's going to happen.
0: Do you? Uh, is this guy? Uh... A licensed con- contractor? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. All right. I mean, he does roofing. it's a pretty big company. Okay. He did my front steps and stuff. It was pretty awesome.
0: All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, maybe I should get your next-door neighbor <laughs> to work on our foundation, because there's a huge gap in our foundation oh, right no. now, and there are rats living in that huge oh, gap. No. Well, I, I
1: can hook you up. Yeah, thank you. I
0: would like that <laughs> very much. I'm having trouble deciding what to talk about on Friday's Patreon podcast during the monologue. I know we'll be playing an interview from 2004 on Nicaragua. With Louis Proyect Who passed away last week, sadly But my monologue topic That I'm not so certain I could talk about being disabled And what I learned from today's guests writing about Our apparent disposability under capitalism And as a disabled person You, you feel that disposability Every day of your life Or I could talk about The rather ironic selection by my niece Of having me officiate her wedding this weekend When I've never officiated A wedding or any sporting event whatsoever and have never been married despite being with the same person for over 30 years so anger or irony which will it be tune into our podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell friday morning at 10 a.m chicago time and podcast at the same place shortly after to find out but more importantly than any of that richard Please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell for our listening audience? This week's question from
1: Hell is, what are you starting to have second thoughts about?
0: (laughs) What are you starting to have second thoughts about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So, thanks to you for all of your support. Thanks to Jennifer B. in Moscow, Idaho, for showing your support. Thanks, Jennifer, and thanks to Radio Free Moscow for airing this. Is Hell? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to us at chalkitthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of. Thursday's, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff wants to tell you about a racist nympho. Wow. All right, then. Richard, will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Keith on disability and incarceration. Now, before we started having second thoughts ourselves about hosting our anniversary party, We were asking listeners to suggest artists for the art opening and musicians to play during the party. After all, it is a listener appreciation party, so we want art and music that you suggest. Even if that artist or musician is you. And that's exactly what Berman did. Berman writes, Hi Chuck, how are you doing? I'm one of the Brazilian listeners of the podcast. I love the show and the contribution you give to the left all around the world. It's so cool to have Brian Muir and others exposing our situation here in Brazil. I have a punk band called Melvina. In our last album, it's it's just funny because our feral cat here that patrols the beer garden and kills all the rats, his name is Melvina, so very close. I wonder... There's no way I named it after the cat I have a punk band called Malvina In our last album called Hybrid War Which came out in 2019 We denounced the new way of warfare And U.S. interference in underdeveloped countries We started from 2013 With the color revolution And the propaganda that overthrew President Dilma Rousseff The tracks address the car wash operation Operation Lava Giotto the criminalization of the Workers' Party, the arresting of former President Lula, the rise of fascism in Jair Bolsonaro, and the destruction of our people's rights in the last few years. We finished the record before Bolsonaro's victory in the presidential election, so we could only take the phenomenon that led to his election. We went to the Blasting Room in Colorado to mix and master this record, and the result was pretty cool. I'd like to send you some material and hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, and keep doing this killer show. If you want to send anything to us here at This Is Hell, the address is This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And while Berman, while we are still having second thoughts about hosting the anniversary party this year... Or not Whenever we do have the party We will want everyone's suggestions For musicians to perform on stage And artists whose work you would like to see in the art show So send your recommendations On what music you'd like to hear And the art you'd like to see Even if it is your own Whenever we have our party To Chuck at ThisIsHell.com Boris sent an email to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com With his advice on whether we should have the party Boris writes Hi Chuck In the interest of staying informed and entertained as the world is surely becoming hell, we need you alive and healthy. So let's reschedule that party. We can always drink two times as much in July 2022. Cheers, Boris. Boris, I gotta tell you, if I drink twice as much in 2022 as I have been drinking since the beginning of the pandemic... I will definitely not be alive and or healthy. However, if we reschedule a party, my bet is I will be celebrating a lot on July 23rd, 2022. We also have listeners asking about the outdoor space, the beer garden out back behind Carrie's Lounge, and if that could accommodate the party. But it's only about 500 square feet, which is not enough space for the size of a crowd that shows up for the party. Matthew wrote to us saying he that saying that we should quote definitely maybe have the party. Charles says no do not have the party be safe tell obama to wear a mask too but i doubt obama would listen to us. Janet says it's too soon in my honest opinion. Alejandra, Joanne and Herrschner simply give the one word response yes meaning they believe we should have the party as scheduled and just Three Saturdays. That means so far we have Seven listeners who have said We should not have the party And reschedule it for July 2022 And three listeners who say yes We should go through with the party In only two and a half weeks We will share more of your responses On if and when we should have Our 25th anniversary Listener appreciation party and art show Following our conversation with Keith Rosenthal On incarceration and disability Speaking of which Coming up, disability, incarceration, and abolition. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you starting to have second thoughts about? What are you starting to have second thoughts about? person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever piece of merchandise, whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all of the ways that you can support This Is Hell and all of our swag. Again, leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you how you, too, can be part of the This Is Hell crew in just a few minutes. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, This Is Hell. Much like people of color, the market has deemed the lives of the disabled as disposable. And when capitalism determines you cannot contribute, in the past it meant you were either locked up in a prison or you were institutionalized, which are remarkably similar and horrific experiences. Here to help guide us through the incarcerated lives of the disabled, Keith Rosenthal is author of the Spectre Journal article, Carceral Histories of, disabi- of Disability and Abolitionist Analysis, which you can find at specterjournal.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Keith.
2: Hi. Hi. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me.
0: This is really an amazing article, and as I was saying, as a disabled person, it really did enlighten me in many ways about incarceration and abolition and uh, you know uh, discrimination against the disabled. So uh, you write that in 2013, investigative reporting revealed that nearly 150 women incarcerated in the California prison system had been sterilized between 2006 to 2010. The gynecological prison official who oversaw the procedures and was paid nearly $150,000 by the state per sterilization defended the payments and the procedures, stating, quote, over a 10-year period, that isn't a huge amount of money compared to what you save in welfare paying for these unwanted children as they procreated more you add it is certainly outrageous that interned women were coerced into undergoing sterilization oftentimes at the precise moment when they were under sedation and strapped to an operating table but such practices are neither rare with the long scope of u.s history nor are they even technically prohibited by law in all circumstances so keith how aware is the general public that it is legal to coerce restrained incarcerated women who are sedated into being sterilized, so the state does not spend the assumed cost of raising their children? Can can uh, opponents and supporters of women's rights to choose claim they simply did not know? Because you would think you would think that pro-life people would be against this policy as well mm. as pro-choice people.
2: Yeah. Um, well, in this particular uh, case in California, I mean, ultimately it was. Um, you know, deemed to be an illegal, um, series of acts. Um, uh, not because as I say, um, sterilization or even involuntarily involuntary sterilization is illegal, but because it was, um, deemed that they didn't go through the proper, um, state channels to get approval. And also because, um, there was a concern that, that federal funds were involved, which um, is the only, um, that's the main caveat for, um, you know, for these procedures being declared illegal. But um, otherwise, I mean, states across the country still allow for uh, involuntarily, involuntary sterilization. Um, and, um, you know, and and there are a number of ways actually that, um the reproduction the uh, right to have um uh, children um and families are uh proscribed by um federal and state laws there was a report a number of years ago issued by the national council on disability which is a independent federal level agency um, that you know discussed the myriad ways there's a sort of eugenics in operation from um you know the extent to which people uh disabled parents children are taken from them because they're deemed um you know unacceptable um, parents or you know disabled people that receive state services and are tied up with the um, social service and welfare system are coerced into Um, getting like depro shots or tubal ligations and um, in order to keep receiving funds Um, it's certainly not on the scale that it was you know from roughly the 1920s through the 1970s when um, estimates are hundreds of thousands of mostly poor mostly women of color disabled women were um, forcibly sterilized and including in um, the U.S. colony of Puerto Rico, where it's estimated up to, you know, uh, anywhere um, from like 30 to 40 percent of all um, childbearing age women in Puerto Rico were sterilized by U.S. federal government, um, quote unquote, social welfare programs. But, you know, that was sort of, you know, there was a movement and that was curtailed. Um, So it doesn't go on to that extent, but it still is. Something that goes on and that you occasionally hear these cases, um, um, you know, pop up about because, um, you know, the, the, the prevailing Supreme Court ruling and statutes on these things have never been overturned.
0: You mentioned that this is a case of modern eugenics. Who determines yeah. what characteristics are undesirable? Because that is the goal of eugenics. And and being that there is a history of eugenics developed in the United States and then adopted by the Nazis in order to justify yeah. their treatment of the Jewish people, disabled people, other yeah. minority groups. To, to you, what explains why the U.S. prison system would still be engaging in eugenics?
2: Right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, and I think... The first thing i always you know try to impart to people is to understand the 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 depth of eugenic history in the u.s and how it's not something that we you know regularly learn about or discuss um, as a matter of you know one's basic history you know classes in the school but yeah i mean modern eugenics was really cultivated and fermented in the u.s it was the, the leading epicenter and then spread internationally. I mean, um, I remember finding out that, um, you know, Adolf Hitler and Mein Kampf actually references the US in that book for its, you know, model sterilization and race engineering laws and kind of saying, we need, we need to catch up with the US and do that here. But, um, you know, I think that the US has a, You know particularly as a particular historical development based on white supremacy settler colonialism indigenous genocide um imperialist expansion and then a sort of um rampant industrialization that was first based off slave labor and then um you know shifted the the sort of um center of capital accumulation shifted to the industrial north and um, part of that process is figuring out what is the most effective um, type of society, type of social organization and type of human beings to, um, to create the most lucrative, productive and profitable um, you know, basis for, uh, for a capitalist economy. And you know that has sort of been the driving imperative, and so that's meant, um, you know, different things at, at you know at different times. For instance, for you know the you know African American population, that's meant either like vicious exploitation, hyper exploitation of labor, or the rejection of black labor. Um, you know, and and you know that's sort of why you see the the disproportionate unemployment rates, and and frankly, also imprisonment, incarceration, police violence, and the same thing. Um, uh, um, you know, uh, broadly speaking, um, can be can be understood in the case of uh, disabled people, who um, you know, there's many different ways we can think about you know, what is disability, what is disabled, but from the standpoint of the U.S. government and U.S. economy, um, you know, dated back to to English law and the poor laws and and so on, has to do with one's ability to engage in, um, quote unquote, substantial gainful um, activity. That is to um, have uh, labor that one can sell to a private employer, um you know uh, in return for a wage and that is really the, the 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 line that determines who is officially considered disabled or not um and so i think you know the prison system the institutions um asylums um, you know, penal colonies, et cetera. It's had different forms throughout history, but it's different mechanisms for what you do with that population that is disabled, that you know um, is quote unquote, you know, considered a um, you know a, a liability or a quote unquote drain, you know, on the on the on the economy. Um, how do you control, regulate? Um, and stop me if I'm going on too long here also.
0: No, go ahead, go ahead that's what we it's uh, <laughs> a long form interview. We want you to go in depth.
2: Okay, good. Um, and um, you know I'm part of a part of the issue, um, and this was sort of you can look at um, there's a great book called The Disabled State by Deborah Stone that came out in the 80s that analyzed the um, sort of political economy, labor relations, um, aspect of disability and others, um, you know the the scholar activist whose work I edited in the published um, collection um, that that I put out recently, uh, "Capitalism and Disability." That was um, the writings of Martha Russell, writes on this, but. You know, it's always been a th- it's always been a question um, for capitalism, and, and with the emergence of capitalism, and interesting, if you go back and look at Capital, you know, Volume One, Karl Marx talks about this in um, England and France as capitalism was just emerging. This process of the state working with the employers to try to figure out how you regulate and um, and marshal the labor force well a allowing for the fact that some that the labor power of you know some of the population will simply not be you know won't be able to be profitably employed at a rate that the capitalists will find um you know desirable um but then the question is if you provide relief you know either public relief or used to be private, you know, charitable or religious relief to those people who aren't able to earn a wage, then what's to stop, you know, all, you know, um, all workers, especially, you know, at the, at the, you know, at the birth of capitalism, when you think about sort of the, um, you know, the conditions of child labor and people working 12, 14 hours. And I mean, it's not something that people really, would voluntarily do if they had an option to avoid, right? While while getting an income, so they had to set up all these regimes: the poorhouse, the workhouse. Um, you know, uh, you can get a beggar's pass, so you can, you know, mostly disabled people who could. And you had that in this country as well. And basically, the idea is that being be opting, be having the "quote unquote" privilege of opting out of or being excused from um, wage labor in the factories um if if one were going to be able to do that on account of you know disability um it has to be in such conditions that it is less desirable than earning a wage in a hell house you know industrial factory um you know um, nightmare situation and uh, you know so there so there's a long history of regulation of the labor force of you know um the determining welfare payments and disability payments in such a manner so as to not affect the prevailing wage rate and the rate of profit and, you know, so on and so forth. And I mean, all those calculations still go on in the minds of, like, you know, macroeconomic and, you know, um, you know, uh, people who are observing or at the higher levels, manipulating, you know, stock market and federal reserve rates and things like that. but, um, you know, that's, uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a perennial question. It's a question that can't be resolved within the context of a competitive labor market um, for wages, for profit, um, you know, w- instead of one in which, you know, we sort of collectively democratically plan how we can utilize the um, resources and talents of all humans for the betterment of all humans, um, which is not what capitalism is, is you know organized around.
0: How much does the definition of disability vary from institution to institution? Because for instance, I called up, I'm disabled, I called up and I asked for a disability waiver on my student loans and the person who I was speaking with on the phone said, You were able to dial the phone, and you're able to call me on the phone, so you're able to get a job, so you are not disabled. And I said, well, what if I would sent you an email? And she said the exact same thing. You're able to use a computer, so you are not disabled. So the only way that I could have applied for that disability waiver is to have somebody else call them Mm -hmm. or contact them for me. So how often does this definition of disability vary from institution to institution?
2: yeah i mean i i so you um you cut out about uh, i I didn't catch the middle part of that um
0: oh that, just just that uh, i I asked them you know um, uh, I said that I was disabled and they said, well, if you're able to dial the phone, you're not disabled and uh, if yeah, I, yeah. if I email them, they're like you're able to use a computer, you're not disabled
2: yeah, I mean that's one of the problems with you know the so the federal government actually has a codified um, paradox, a codified contradiction in how it defines disability, which is, you know, the bane of thousands, if not millions of people who have tried to navigate the various disability systems in this country. And what it comes down to is, on the one hand, you have the Social Security uh, Administration definition, which is, inability to engage in work. And it's defined by, um, um, you know, a slew of um, functional medical limitations. And then on the other hand, you have, um, you know, more recently with the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, you have a different definition, right, because the ADA was defined at Um, providing accommodations and non-discrimination for disabled people in the workforce, which according to the social security definition is a contradiction in terms. And what this has meant is that at the um, judicial level, claims that have been brought by disabled plaintiffs seeking redress against discrimination and so on um, versus employers or businesses, um, the the, um, the rate at which those cases go in favor of the employer or the business being sued um, is upwards of 92% because the courts have uh, essentially um, legislated the definition of disability to its most narrow possible way, which is to say they've defined it in a way that is most beneficial to the institutions and big business and employers. Um, So, you know, there's been people who, many cases of people who um, were fired from a job because they had a disability. Um, They would sue through the ADA, which works its way through the courts and can take, you know, a a long time. Um, While they were out of work, they've applied for social security, disability benefits. And then when it comes up in court, that has been used against them. Because the, uh, the attorneys say that, well, if you apply for Social Security benefits, you're admitting that you're unable to engage in work. Therefore, you're firing, not be an act of discrimination because you yourself are admitting that you can't do the work. So, you know, the, the case gets, so I, all of that is to say, is yeah, yeah, what you're describing is powerful, of course. It is a minefield. And even people who apply for Social Security you know disability benefits find that it's a onerous um, process. I mean, you know, the average time for it to work, uh, you know, um, work its way through the system once you apply is two years. You know, if you first, you know, the average wait time to hear back can be up to 12 months. Vast majority of people are denied um, on their first attempt. Then if you appeal, it, it can go for another, you know, eight to 12 months um, and then, you um, you know, a good good chunk of those people are then approved, the person denied, and then waiting two years. And you know, this is two years in which you have no income, right? If you don't have your benefits and you're out of work, you also don't have, um, you know, you you, you wouldn't uh, uh, have your uh, necessarily have your health care yet because Medicare coverage doesn't kick in um, for, uh, for uh, I think it's eighteen months. Um, until after you get your benefits. So at all levels. And then, yeah, if you get to institutions, universities, um, you know, uh, what you're describing, debt relief programs, I mean, it is a mess. It is really a mess. And that's because there's this tension between understanding disability purely as an economic relation, as a function of one's, as a function of the, um, you know, uh, price, the value of one's labor as determined on the labor market right um and then a more and then a different sort of more social or general understanding of disability um which i think is the one that prevails mostly in society which is just understanding it as someone who has you know various uh, some kind of special needs or you know quote unquote differently abled or you know there's some impairment which you know that definition there's um, some drawbacks you know to, to, to that understanding of it as well. So you know, um, yeah, and some you're right, it is, it is very ambiguous to the detriment of, of those who are trying to navigate it and navigate our society.
0: And you write about institutionalization At its peak in the mid-1950s There were an estimated 550,000 People confined to the nation's mental Asylums and hospitals. Today the number of People with mental illnesses and disabilities Confined to the nation's prisons and jails Is estimated to be close to One and a quarter million. The red Thread connecting the erstwhile System of incarceration in Institutional asylums and that of the prison System today is more than Abstractly analogous. Both Represent forms of segregation subjugation and constraint as coercive mechanisms of social policy. But Keith, the prison is punishment is institutionalization or was institutionalization as it existed at its peak in the 1950s. Was that punishment for the disabled or perceived by those who were institutionalized as a punishment?
2: Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a good question. I I think that it certainly wasn't a sort of, you know, uh, criminal penal um you know uh, uh phenomenon in the way that it is now in the way that since you know i mean since the beginning of the era of mass incarceration in date roughly you know the 70s 80s a whole slew of people and activity have been criminalized that weren't previously criminalized or or, or you know a whole slew of activities and behaviors were deemed punishable and punished, um, certainly either for the first time or in a um, exaggerated, um, you know, um, you know, hyper form. Um, I think that you know there are disability studies and you know prisons, uh, prisons, scholars and activists who do talk about um, punishment in a different sense. Right? It could be seen as to have a disability or have, um, you know, some sort of uh, uh, mental illness or impairment was a sort of, you know, um, it it was seen as sort of punishment in itself, right? Either in the religious sense or in a sort of like self guilt, self shame. um, And, uh, you know, so, and certainly in the height of eugenics when disability was equated with like um, a sort of moral or um, personal certainly genealogical um, uh, depravity right Um, and so there's a certain um, like for instance um, the court case the 1927 supreme court case by the you and know, the, the justice uh, Oliver Holmes who liberals tend tend to love, but he's a quite atrocious and bigoted person. but you know his argument in, in in writing the court case, writing the ruling in favor of involuntarily sterile involuntary sterilization was essentially that you had these um, imbecile and depraved and you know just quote unquote like garbage, families, lineages, genetic stocks that were reproducing. And so the progeny, you know the, the last in the line um, you know were had to pay for the sins of their elders and reproducing their you know uh, you know deformed stock. They had to and, that, and, the, and the price that they had to pay was sterilization. Um, whether they wanted to or not in order for the you know to the for the benefit of society as a whole to not have to you know support support such people and so yes there was a certain you know you are your disability your impairment your you know as they call them then you know your lunacy your feeble-mindedness your you know insanity was a sort of statement and commentary on on your you know innermost Value And so being institutionalized, there wasn't, like I say, it wasn't a criminal penal, but there was a, yeah, there was an element of, you know, sort of, um, you know, punishment um, or, or certainly, you know, maybe you could call it a, maybe at the time, you know, you, you call it like a quote unquote necessary evil punishment, that even if it's not your fault that you were afflicted by these things, it's still in society's interest that you be segregated, warehoused, and cordoned off. Um, and that is a form of punishment, social exclusion, social ostracism, um, in a word, what I would call oppression, you know writ large, you know um, Now there is a tension in that history between some who saw it as some who the idea that there could be a rehabilitative function to the institutions, which you know, I think there is an analogy there with the prison system, right? I mean, there's a veneer of uh, sort of rehabilitative function um, in our in our just critical justice system and prison system. Um, and that's why it's called, you know, Department of Corrections. They're correcting, they're rehabilitating you, um, sort of a re-education camps, you know, through labor and, and you know, hard work and confinement. Um, and there was a degree of that which went on in these state hospitals and psychiatric institutions and asylums. Um, that i think is is important to 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 note
0: how much is this forced sterilization based on a misunderstanding of disability for instance my parents were completely able bodied people and uh, i myself and a brother of mine are both disabled so uh, how much is this uh, was this forced sterilization based on uh, misunderstandings and assumptions that were just completely inaccurate yeah
2: Well, so I think there's two parts to that. One is that, um, you know, a huge, you know, we could say easily a huge portion of what is considered a disability or an impairment is socially constructed. That is, it's, you know, historical. So, for instance, up until quite recently, you know, you know, homosexuality or any any type of non hetero um, sexual or gender normative proclivities were considered a um, sexually deviant a psychological aberration they're considered a disability right and so yeah people were institutionalized sterilized um, another one is you know uh, miscegenation so for instance the the you know there's a lot of examples of women being sterilized for having um you know regardless of whether consensual or non-consensual but sexual relations with um black men um that was considered a disability um and then you know yeah the intelligence quotients um which are you know have been widely written about and understood as racist and problematic and um you know um uh socially you know uh prejudiced and culturally prejudiced um and then um yeah i mean any any number of um you know uh, things that we think of as you know traditional impairments or disabilities um I think that, that that there was a sort of you know junk science, pseudoscience, inflected by racism and bigotry and sexism, um, certainly, and all this um, that led to what we could call you know lots of people um, you know in quotes wrongly being targeted. But I think even you know even for those conditions or diseases that maybe are hereditary. Um, You know, I still think that we, you know, need to, you know, uh, and not say that, and I'm not saying that you're doing this, but I think it's important to, you know, see them all as part of a problematic way of understanding, um, you know, how society treats those deemed deviant or, um, or a critical threat to the normal or, Um, you know, most efficient and profitable functioning of the system. Um, And, you know, understand that, you know, the problem is not, you know, um, that somebody is, you know, blind per se, or somebody, you know, uses a wheelchair, you know, that that should disqualify them and render them marked with a stamp, like, defective, right, as if you were sorting out um, commodities on an assembly line and chucking away the ones that are defective um, but rather that you know it, it's perfectly possible and 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 even historically to look back at pre-capital societies normal and natural for people with an array of um, abilities or you know impairments to be integrated into society and accommodated and set up to engage in you know whatever activity that they you know you know best suits them, um, especially with a society that is the wealthiest, most technologically advanced society in world history. That it's you know perfectly you know we're perfectly capable of integrating and accommodating you know all, all human beings into into the. Um, uh, you know, c- civic, economic, social, and political life uh, of our species.
0: We are speaking with Keith Rosenthal. He is author of the Specter Journal article "Carceral Histories of Disability: and Abolitionist Analysis," which you can find at spectrejournal.com He's also the editor of "Capitalism and Disability: Selected Writings by Marta Russell." So, is the concept then of being disabled, of being handicapped, is that an invention of capitalism?
2: So, um, you know, I, I, the um, short answer is yes, as a, you know, socially distinct category or classification, um, you know, that, that didn't um, exist, you know, as, as, you know, you would, as something that one would, um, you know, be labeled as prior to, um, yeah, you know capitalism and, and the rise of the labor market and so on essentially with the rise of you know the um the breakup of, you know either feudal or pre um feudal like agrarian societies and the anthropological evidence is actually quite rich in this regard if you look at Various indigenous societies across the world, and um, but even yeah, like feudal societies, like you know uh, the communal uh, lands of you know the peasants in Russia and, and England and and Ireland and elsewhere. But um, when you have people sort of working the land communally and families working together, you know, you know, you had people with in a variety of impairments, and to be sure, different societies in different places throughout the world have treated people with various um apparent impairments very differently right depending upon a number of um, factors that I would argue ultimately come down to, um, you know, the the prevailing um, economic and social modes and um, you know cultural um, forms um, of these different societies. But yeah, some people, you know, with um, certain um, you know traits, um, were treated poorly, very poorly. Um, others were integrated very seamlessly and there's again lots of um, evidence and historical record of you know um, people today with you know blindness or um, dwarfism or any number of things who had um, integrated roles in their communities and families and in the tribe or village um, but the, but the difference is that there was no sort of um, you know sort of meta, classification no umbrella you know categorical term for people who had x abilities which then rendered them unable to engage in um, the economic or social activity of the community you know um, full stop right that didn't exist you know people there were were different niches and roles that people um either fit into or didn't but it, it, it was only with the emergence of the wage relation, when those communal lands are breaking up, you know, means of production are taken over and owned by the, you know, owning uh, class. And, the, you know, and everyone was compelled to living by selling their individual labor power on the market to a capitalist, to be evaluated individually and judged individually. There's no more collective, what can we do together, you know what can this you know village or commune of peasants produce together? To you know, it was not individual capacity, and that's when you have a whole class of rates that have nothing in common. You know, I mean, you know. Um, oh, right? Are you still with me?
0: Yes. Yes, I'm still here.
2: Okay. Sorry, I had internet unstable um, But anyway, people who, you know, um, somebody who has, you know, um, you know may, um, you know, hear voices or somebody who, you know, may have, um, you know, um, intense arthritis or, you know, it's nothing at all to do with one another can be classified together as sort of um, a common um, problem. Right, according to the extent to which it depreciates one's um, uh, commodity um, uh, value, that is one's labor power value, and so you know that's a long way of saying that yes, the, the category of disability as such is a function of of capitalism, of the wage relation.
0: And because of the focus on the individual As opposed to the collective action You write that by the 1960s and 1970s However, the institutional complex Was coming under increasing criticism and protest Significantly disabled people Confined within institutions Were also active in this awakening of social unrest Self-advocacy groups Like Speaking for Ourselves and People First Were populated by disabled people Formerly or presently living in institutions Members of these groups Faced intense repression, intimidation and violence at the hands of institution administrators And staffers bent on Keeping their wards in line Persecution notwithstanding the agency And activism of such people Would ultimately come to play a key role In reforming and closing many state institutions So Keith, what what replaced These institutions? Once they were closed How did the disabled get the care They did need? Yeah
2: um, Yeah, so if I can um, You know, just a to, just to step back On that, one thing I did want to say about understanding the extent to which because now you know we don't have today in that same way you know the massive you know um megalithic imposing you know state institutions and asylums um you know like you know and now we read about them as like a you know piece of cultural history like you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest and you know um You know, uh, so on. Um, But they were pervasive, right? They were, um, you know, these massive, you know, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in these institutions. Um, And, you know, I mean, I I just, anecdotally, I just finished this new book that's coming out on Woody Guthrie. Um, Are you familiar? I mean, I
0: assume. Very much so. And his uh, son Arlo as well. Very much so.
2: Yeah. So I just finished this great book on Woody Guthrie, you know, who um, had Huntington's disease and his mother had Huntington's disease and tells a story about how his mom, you know, growing up in Oklahoma and his mom at a very young age started to exhibit symptoms of that, which can be both psychological and physiological. And her, she was um, the town center and said, she's crazy. And she, um, by, by Woody Guthrie's father. She was put into an institution um, where she died shortly thereafter. Woody Guthrie ended up in his later years cycling between a number of state institutions and psychiatric hospitals around New York City area. Um, and the author talks about, and I haven't thought about this, but he talks about this poem by Allen Ginsberg, Howell. Um, Allen Ginsberg, the you know famous beat poet and communist. Um, who, you know, writing this in the 50s, gives a sense of how pervasive this was, right? The first line of the poem, um, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked. And he goes on to describe, you know, all of his, all of these comrades um, locked up in, um, you know, Pilgrim State, Rockland, Greystone, all these, you know, state institutions. And, you know, Ginsburg's own mother, who was in the Communist Party, was put it in an institution and a lot of his friends. And um, so, you know, there was, it was a pervasive thing. Lots of people were just locked up. Um, You know, again, I mean, this is, you know, the the 40s, 50s, 60s. It's cold war. It's repressive. It's homophobic. It's red scare. It's any deviant way of behavior and thinking and yada, yada, yada. Um, So as the, but, you know, as with a lot of things, um, with the coming of the 60s and 70s, and the onset of like massive social unrest and, you know, social movements and sort of revival of a new left and socialist and, you know, uh, you know, various libertarian strains and, and you know, so on and so forth um, across the board. Right. Dealing with gender and race. Part of that was an emergent disability rights movement, which is an important uh, history of and an emerging um anti-institutional anti-institutionalization movement which was both people in those institutions some of whom were leftists some of whom were politicized and radicalized by their experience some of whom it wasn't a political thing they just knew that they didn't want to be tortured and drugged and treated like you know um you know nothing substrate um, and so there were there are movements um both inside and outside these institutions to have them shut down and closed um, you know um like some like you know like like much of you know I, or, I i think there's an element of the 60s um uprising which has to do with the cold war in a weird way in that there were the critiques that these you know massive institutions were like these you know Stalinist totalitarian things that were unbecoming of a you know so-called leader of the free world, and so people criticized it from that angle. Um, um, but also, like you know, like I said, some criticize it from you know just a general human rights um, emancipatory anti-oppression framework. Um, and you know, um, it's also worth saying that that there's a there's a complex or a complicated history, but also sort of begins to intersect with the advent of neoliberalism and the end of the sort of post-war Keynesian social welfare democratic state. So a lot of states began, so there's this confluence of factors um, that led to the state shuttering these institutions, these massive state institutions. Um, Part of it, uh, part of the movement was um, did in fact try to put forward alternatives, community based alternatives. Um, you know, um, uh, some of which has been called you know, these independent living centers, um, which help facilitate this process, and many of them still exist to this day um, and are very important in cities across the country. Um, so a lot, so there are a good deal of people that left the institutions and were able to find you know supports and infrastructures in community settings um you know either in their own homes with um, in-home you know personal care attendants and supports or in you know more communal residential settings that were you know nonetheless um they were able to enjoy um a degree of autonomy or as much autonomy as anyone can enjoy under you know this system of inequality and oppression um, um, so it's you know it's important to say that there are successes coming out of that, but there are also you know the limitations um, of people leaving the institutions and then going out into you know the hellscape that was the 80s, you know uh, 80s and 90s um, American capitalism. And just you know, finding homelessness and poverty and lack of infrastructure and cuts to welfare and cuts to disability, um, you know, assistance and um, and that has been a uh, quite tragic story. So some of those people, um, you know, have ended up, um, you know, did end up in in prisons. An even greater number, I think, who were never in institutions have since been caught up in the prison system. Um, and then others have ended up in nursing homes. In a nursing home, today there's, you know, approximately 1.4, I believe, million people in um, living in various nursing homes and long-term, you know, residential facilities in the U.S. Nursing homes have become the new... I mean, that's why there's a, there's a book... That one author wrote, called "From Snake Pits to Cash Cows," It basically details how we went from the state institutions, which were considered snake pits, you know, uh, hellscapes, to cash cows, which are these private nursing homes. And you know, vast majority of nursing homes in the U.S. today, o- over 68 percent, are private for-profit um, uh, uh, enterprises. They get money. For every person they take into the nursing home, they get money from Medicaid to pay directly to the nursing home. So it doesn't even go through into that you know person's hands to f- determine whether they want to get support through a nursing home or through you know a uh, uh, independent you know arrangement or or through you know paying personal care attendants in their homes. They largely don't even have that choice. Medicaid money goes straight to the nursing home, which pockets that lump sum, and then as all corporate you know, businesses, they make money by having lower expenses, right, than they do um, revenue. And so you end up having nursing homes today that end up, um, you know, skimping on on, um, care for residents on, you know, uh, infection and health standards, which is why part of the reason, a good deal of the reason why nursing homes, in addition to prisons, have been the hot spots for where COVID just ripped through and you know um, killed an inordinate number of people Um, but that's that's where a lot of people end up now including younger disabled people I mean it's not just you know elderly senior citizens in our nursing homes Um, you know uh, around 15 percent of the population are younger disabled people who are there just for long term you know because they weren't able to get in-home supports with attendance or their family, you know, I understand it's a tough call because families aren't given resources and supports to take care of, you know, loved ones um, or children. And so it puts everyone in in an unnecessarily tough and precarious and exploitative position.
0: You write that the Center for Disease Control reports that between 1992 and 2003, the number of people with psychological impairments or disabilities visiting emergency rooms nationwide increased by 56 percent, from 2.3 million to 3.7 million. Understaffed and underfunded, many emergency rooms often turn these people back out onto the street without providing either adequate treatment or support. The result is a situation that funnels disabled people into the extensive grasp of the sprawling US system of mass criminal incarceration. So are support and treatment not offered as a result of the process of neoliberalism? And if so, does neoliberalism then contribute to crime?
2: Mm. Well, I mean, I think that, so, you know, so A, I think you could say, we could say that neoliberalism, neoliberalism, I I would say, contributes to crime in, Maybe a, diff- maybe a different sense than uh, maybe most people understand it, um, which is that I think neoliberalism, part of it has been criminalizing behaviors which previously wouldn't be criminalized. And that's everything from like um, quality of life, uh, you know, arrests of people, panic the street or sleeping on the street or just having uh, just you know being traumatized out on the street um and you know and obviously also you know there's addiction and drug use and all kinds of other you know um criminalized activity um from theft and so on that you know in another circumstance one could see a different way to deal with it than through you know criminal criminalization um and i think that i mean certainly we you know i think it's no secret that healthcare system healthcare generally in this country is a problem right even post um you know affordable care at Obamacare, we still have a you know privatized expensive inefficient ineffective system um the mental health aspect of that is even more atrocious and worse um, especially if you look at the way that insurance you know schemes deal with mental versus physical health care needs um, and um, yeah I mean it's um yeah uh, you know I think that it's, it's, a, it's I think neoliberalism is exacerbated um, and it's you know and, you know and it's a particular, um, phase of capitalism and it's, you know, how it's engaged with disability. Um, but I think it's also a more, you know, general problem of, of, you know, the profit system. And I mean, I think it's similar to, you know, we talk about policing and incarceration and um, and I think as we should, people focus on how that's it's a racial system, a system of racial control and oppression you know, in an era of, you know, late capitalism and social decay and crisis and, you know, economic um, dissolution, what have you. Um, And that also goes for disabled people, you know, studies show that uh, police disproportionately um, kill and target disabled people. In fact, uh, estimates are that 40 percent of all people killed by police in any year have a disability. and there are a disproportionate number of those locked up. And, and the, you know, the health system is not set up. I mean, you know, there's a longer, maybe a longer conversation about the healthcare system and what its function is under capitalism. I mean, I'd say in a, in a nutshell, it is to um, repair, you know, uh, r- repair the, the worker repair the commodity the labor power of a worker to get back to work um, you know it's it's a business it's part of a you know national national um, you know system for looking after the economic well-being of society um, not first and foremost just about healing and helping people right otherwise then it would be free and universal but so the healthcare system is not really designed to just help people like that. And I, you know, I actually worked in an emergency room um, recently um, for about, you know, a couple of years and yeah, it's devastating. I mean, it's certainly eye-opening for me just how, um, yeah, how many people just with disabilities, you know, psychiatric disabilities or just people who've fallen through the cracks, you know, people who are homeless, impoverished, um, because oftentimes they have nowhere else to go. You know, they're picked up by the police or by ambulance crews brought to the emergency room. Emergency room doctors look them over for, you know, um, specific and acute medical symptoms, right? And try to treat those um, when that person may really, or, or more importantly, have a whole series of social and personal and emotional acute things going on. But the hospital doesn't treat that, so they're just... You know, put back out on the street, you know, day after, you know, the next day and the day after, they just turn right back up and they're picked up again. Um, so it's, it's inefficient and it's cruel and it's, and it's oppressive on, on many levels.
0: One last question for you, Keith. Keith Rosenthal has been our guest. He wrote the Spectre Journal article, Carceral Histories of Disability and Abolitionist Analysis, which you can find at spectrejournal.com. Keith is the editor of Capitalism and Disability, selected writings by Marta Russell. You can follow Keith on Twitter at KeithMNR81 and find more of Keith's writing at joanofmark.blogspot.com. Com. One last question for you, Keith, and as we do yeah. with all of our guests, our final question is what we call yeah. the question from hell, the question we may um, hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our yeah, audience yeah. is going to hate your response. How dependent is capitalism on oppression, whether it's oppression of the poor, people of color, or the disabled? How dependent is capitalism on oppression for its success? Can capitalism effectively function without oppression?
2: Yeah. Um, well, um, before before I answer that real quick, because I, I would kick myself if I didn't just give due credit to the the author who, whose you know books I based a lot of this on is Liat Ben Moshe, who's a disability studies and prison scholar out of Chicago. People should check out her works. But um, I. Um, you know, for a this is hell question, that one is that one's easy to me. It's such an easy question. Because I think that, yeah, I think the the answer is, I think that capitalism absolutely requires oppression. I mean, you know, again, I mean, one could argue I'm biased because I am I am a socialist, but of course someone who's not a socialist and is something else will be biased on their political opinion. Um, but no, I think capitalism is at base an oppressive system you know i think um it, it, the most basic element like that i like i described that wage relation that individualist pursuit of profit um you know all versus all competitive um you know selfishness um i think is oppressive because it's exploitive towards those who are supposed to do the work of capitalism right um and in in enriching you know the bezos or the Musk's of the world but it's also um oppressive you know it's it's you know as the saying goes it's it's bad for those who are in the system and it's bad for those who are um marginalized from it you know it's bad for those who are exploited and it's bad for those who are um you know prohibited from engaging in you know exploited wage labor um and and as a competitive system um you know it it engenders and requires um you know playing upon all the racial and gender nationalist um you know divisions between people so you know that's my uh that's my that's my answer
0: and despite just having a 48, or maybe 53 minute conversation with Keith, I want to make sure everybody go read the article. There's far more in the article. We touched on stuff that wasn't in the article and there's far more in the article, carceral histories of disability and abolitionist analysis by Keith Rosenthal, Rosenthal, which you can find at SpecterJournal.com. Thank you so much for being on our show this week.
2: No, thank you very much for inviting me. I, I love the show and you know, you do a great job. And I, I- hats off to you and much respect
0: wow thank you very much I didn't know so now we have three listeners I know how many listeners we have (laughs) thank you Keith I really appreciate it right, thanks a lot we told you so this is hell Richard please remind the listening audience what this week's question from hell is
1: this week's question from hell is what are you starting to have second thoughts
0: about and how are our listeners responding we have many answers (laughs) I see (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, let me just find my place right. Sorry. the person with our uh, favorite answer to this week's question mail <laughs> wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of our stuff
1: yes uh, Garrett S is, is having second thoughts about life nice Randall is having second thoughts about masturbation and its impact
0: (laughs) nice forearms though
1: Aaron D is having second thoughts about pot stocks (laughs) alright Fabio is having second thoughts about waking up (laughs) Stanley B is having second thoughts about first thoughts oh great now finding another thought following my discovery that, dar- that darn Dan K and that darn Jack W also said, quote first thoughts, <laughs> Paulina H is having second thoughts about Kratom. <laughs> nice. Which is like some kind of tea. It's gross. <laughs> some kind of gross tea. Yes. Wozniak is having second thoughts about Sim City.
0: <laughs> really? Too late. I know. I was going to say, are you also having second thoughts about Doom and Tetris? (laughs) Chris
1: H. is having second thoughts about his third thoughts. Jesus.
0: A lot of math going on here.
1: John W. is having second thoughts about this whole internet malarkey. (laughs) Scott W. is having second thoughts about that breakfast burrito I had this morning. I'm sorry, I thought that was from a couple days ago. But still, maybe he's still having second <laughs> thoughts. <might>
0: having... <laughs> Those it, it breakfast burritos linger.
1: Daniel M. is having second thoughts about whether humanity is worth the effort. <laughs> Ladio is having second thoughts about taking a train in for the anniversary. Yeah. Aaron B. is having second thoughts about nuclear power and the nuclear industry. I would. Neil C. is having second thoughts about doubling up on my sleep meds.
0: (laughs) Nice, nice.
1: Gregory K. is having second thoughts about the house on the rock.
0: (laughs) Have you ever been there? I love that answer. A question from hell. You're having second thoughts about the House on the Rock. You, you should have second thoughts about the House on the Rock when you're first going to the House on the Rock. I've never been there. Oh,
1: I, I know it's a little crazy town. A little. Mason W. is having second thoughts about opening my third eye. <laughs> Jack B. is having second thoughts about coffee. Hmm. I think I'm more into tea? Question mark. <laughs> Justin M. is having second thoughts about that timeshare at Miami Beach. <laughs> yes. Michael D. is having second thoughts about second thoughts.
0: Again, a lot of people have second thoughts about their second thoughts and their first yeah, thoughts.
1: Just a few more. Okay. John T. is having second thoughts about continuing to work after death. <laughs> All right. Aaron B. is having second thoughts about my answer to this question. <laughs> it's good, but is it good enough? <laughs>
0: That's pretty good.
1: Marco G is having second thoughts about if my midlife crisis will happen in the actual middle. <laughs> dot, dot, dot.
0: I had several midlife crises and I don't think I'm crises. And uh, if you have your midlife crisis when you're 40, that's kind of admitting that you're going to die when you're 80. So I'm trying to put them off for as long as possible. Any more? That is it. All right. So. Uh, Richard will have more, or not Richard, uh, Egon will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell on tomorrow's show. Don't forget, we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth this week. Jeff wants to tell you about a racist nympho. I don't know who it is. We are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Egon and Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. We're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Friday, essentially. However, we are very flexible. And if you you can only do it a couple of times a month We can work with your schedule This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio For your own projects as well The position does come with a very modest stipend So keep that in mind If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell Email me at chuck at thisishell.com Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Richard, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time, right here at ThisIsHell.com.
1: Yes, tomorrow we have Gus Spath on his book, They knew the U.S. federal government's 50-year role in causing the climate crisis. Yeah,
0: and Gus was the science advisor for the Carter administration. So as that science was becoming essentially finalized and confirmed, he was working with the Carter administration. So his insight and perspective is going to be really interesting. And Jeff Dorchin, correct?
1: That is true. Something about a nympho racist. <laughs> a
0: racist nympho. I don't know. So we're getting more opinions from listeners on whether we should go through with the 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show. This is art as scheduled, actually rescheduled for Saturday, September 18th. In only two and a half weeks at Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from this here studio. And with yesterday's news of a new variant with multiple mutations emerging in South Africa, which has a very low vaccination rate. There's a very real likelihood that this pandemic will continue for a lot longer than any of us think. Tom shared an opinion on the party that many listeners are sharing, and that is, I currently feel too overly cautious to attend in September. Krimsky writes, I can't come, so I say no. Can't come, won't go. T-shirts, mugs, stickers available soon. Adam says, hmm. Let it wait. Nora explains I can't have an opinion Because though I usually wanted to I never came to the party in the past Too timid I would go now without a pandemic Whether or not you choose to believe me I believe you. But with Delta, to me, it seems unwise enough for me. I'd suggest you maybe try to explore different alternatives or plan for 2022 with plan B's that include different alternative environments, just in case we aren't too much better off than we are now. And maybe that way it could happen no matter what this time? I don't think I would attend with Delta on the upswing Because as you mentioned, the party involves food, people may be smoking And in crowds or groups that are in close enough quarters with no masking And I have never been to the gallery space or studio upstairs But are you going to monitor timed entry? So, no to the party Sorry All good points, Nora, and please join us whenever we do have our next party Do not be timid I would say we don't bite But I do not claim to speak for everyone Last week's question from Elwinter Mika He writes I know you aren't going to check vax cards But that doesn't mean you couldn't tell everybody That this party is only for the vaccinated Please do not come if you are not vaccinated Yada yada Consequences for not getting vax is one of the next steps A lot of public health folks I see are talking about So Consequences for not getting vax is one of the next steps Public health folks are talking about The consequences being you get the virus so that's not a yes but it's not a no either michael on the other hand says if listeners show proof of being fully vaxxed while wearing masks if indoors then yes yeah i'm not checking vax cards i do not need that tension and there's a front door and then there's a back door at the beer garden we'd have to have two people posted my girlie was suggesting stamping hands, maybe, and then making sure that if you can't get a drink unless you have a stamped hand. It all seems too complicated. Laura says, personally, I love sitting outside anyway, so I feel that those who want to hang outside probably would feel differently. On the other hand, even outside, if you're talking in close contact with someone not vaccinated, you do run a risk. Nick thinks there is one way we could still have the party, suggesting it should be outdoors only, And in a park And I think that sounds fantastic Except for In Chicago Drinking in the park is illegal Now, I drink in the park As an individual But when you have a big party in the park And you're drinking You can bet that the police will be dropping by Tracy writes I've got my This Is Hell hat that I won at the party Two years ago To hold me over until next year So, no party this year And Tamara tells us, I went to one of your parties before I moved away from Chicago. I thought the party was great. But no, don't have the party. Not during a pandemic where even vaccinated people are getting sick. So maybe they won't die. But who can afford to be out sick for three weeks like my vaccinated friend who just lost her unvaccinated husband to COVID? And who can afford even a mild case? when we're already aware that even mild cases can carry serious long-term repercussions? Many thanks for asking the question. You're welcome, Tamara. This is a listener appreciation party, and we appreciate everyone's response. And I do know people who have long-haul COVID. So, yeah, even if you do survive COVID, it can be really annoying for the rest of your life. Please tell us what you think about us having the party on September 18th, and we'll share your thoughts on air. Email me at at chuckatthisishell.com with your thoughts. So far, we have 14 votes to reschedule for July 2022 and four votes saying we should go ahead with the party as planned in just three Saturdays from now. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Merch. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to our guest, Keith Rosenthal. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest live. From late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell.
1: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller.